Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. Today we have a really special treat because we've got Natalie May for the podcast today. Natalie, welcome. Hi Esther, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for those who's like, who is this Natalie person? Okay, she's an author and she's in the middle right now of a trilogy. Begins with The Kinder Poison, The Cruelest Mercy. Book three is supposed to... Originally, I thought it was coming out June time, or maybe that was originally, and then I saw it was moved to December time. Was it moved or was it always supposed to be at the end of this year? Yeah, right now it is December, and that may even push a little more. I'm hoping not, but we'll kind of see how it goes. So that's why when I originally reached out to you, I had thought that it was going to be coming out in June. And you're like, oh, I'm setting my first draft. And I was like, what? I'm way behind. Don't worry about it at all. I know some writers work well under pressure, but you know. I'm not going to try to get information, but if some of it happens to fall, I guess we'll find out the name and all that's going to come soon. Yes, I'm hoping maybe the end of March or maybe April for both a title reveal and then kind of a summary so you can know what will be in the book. Awesome. Okay, and then while we're distracted a little bit, because we'll have to go back to the beginning of how this all came about, I just got to say the covers of your books, what's so cool about them is that when you look at shelves, especially if you're looking at YA covers, there's a lot, a lot of beautiful covers out there, but a lot of them are usually very dark in tone. And your books have these like neon colors to them. You can't miss them on a bookshelf. It's so cool. Yeah, I really love the color palette that my designer chose, and I really love the simplicity of what Penguin decided to do with these covers, with just the kind of two symbols. Like, you have the scorpion and the flower for book one, you have the snake and the crown for book two, and I just really like how it captures everything in the book in, like, a single, simple image. And then, of course, those bright jewel tone colors to kind of offset what else is on the shelves there. They did a brilliant job. I really love my covers. That is amazing. I'm almost more curious to see what the next color is than even about like what the title of it's going to be. You know what I want the color to be, ironically, and I don't know what I want on it. Okay, again, once we're being sidetracked, well, we're skipping ahead kind of with the cover (laughs) talk, but how much input, do you have any input or originally they just showed it to you and as long as you loved it and now as you're in the series you have a little bit more input or is it just your wish list? When you do a cover through a publisher, they have their own strategy for what they know sells and what your book might be similar to. So they kept using comparisons of me to like Red Queen. So I think that's why they kind of did the more simple, cleaner cover with a symbol on there versus something a little more intricate and with the first one especially they did ask me what do you envision for the cover what kind of symbols are important to the book that you would want to see on there so that's where I gave them the idea of the scorpion and then my other idea I had originally given them was Zaru's broken head chain that's pretty significant in book one they kind of take that and they take what they know sells and what will make kind of a cleaner image and they put it all together publisher wants you to be happy with your cover as well So they kind of work together with you to get something that everybody agrees on. But ultimately, they are going to try and make the cover that sells. As the author, you might have to compromise a little bit. But when they showed me the scorpion with the flower, I knew already that was perfect for the book. So I I had no trouble with any of the covers here. I thought they were just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, they're very excited. Now let's go backwards to this point that I usually start with everyone is how do you get into this? I'm going to write a book and wow, look, I got my book published. The longer, short version, how we even got to this point. This might turn into a long version. I'm not sure. I'm just (laughs) going to kind of ramble for a little bit here. But so I've always known that I wanted to write or I guess I've always written and didn't know I wanted to be an author. When I was little and in elementary school, I was always jotting down pieces of stories. I had like a hundred notebooks with a hundred starts to different stories all over 
over my room. I would make my friends write with me. Some of them are still with me today, so it was fine. And then as I got older in college, I didn't think I could make money with an English degree or so people were telling me. So I went toward information technology. So I was actually a computer programmer for a number of years before I started to think more seriously about writing again. Because even through that, after work and stuff, I found some great friends online who also love to write and we would create these characters and we just have the characters interact and kind of write stories that way. And one day I just sat down and I was like, you know, with all this writing that I'm doing here, there and everywhere, I could just sit down and write a book. And so that's kind of when it started. I started looking into how to get published and how to do all that. So I, I didn't always know that being an author was an option. I had no idea how you got into that world, or I guess I just thought authors were magical people who fell from the stars. Apparently, anyone can do it. With enough hard work and effort and research, anyone can get there. So I, I put in that work, and I worked with a freelance editor to make my work really shine. And eventually, I got in with an agent and got published. Wow. Fantastic. And then just saying that you got in with an agent, was that through the regular careering or someone you met, you met through someone or that you met at a uh, conference or something? Ooh, let me think back to all those years ago. I queried regularly for a while. And then when I switched over to like a, a new book, this one's actually called Duplicity and it's under a different pen name that I wrote before I wrote The Kinder Poison. I entered that sample into a couple of online writing contests that had agents look over winning entries at the end. And by some stroke of luck, I won an entry into both of these contests at around the same time. So then I had a pool of 10 or 11 agents who had requested it and I found my agent through that. Oh, amazing. Oh, one second. So The Kinder Poison is not your debut or what landed you an agent was not The Kinder Poison? The Kinder Poison is my debut under my, my fantasy debut under the name Natalie May. It is my fantasy debut. And then uh, way back in 2015, my very first book I came out with was called Duplicity by N.K. Traver. And it's a cyber thriller that I wrote, I think when I was 24 or 25. And it's just this crazy story about this kid whose mirror reflection starts moving on its own. He's like a hacker and he has to turn his life around type of thing. That's my true debut from way back in the day. But then I had a kid and I took a few years off of writing. And when I got back into it, I was like, you know what? I, fantasy is where my heart is. That's what I really want to do. That's what I can see myself doing for a long time. So my agent and I were like, okay, let's start over. Let's really get into this fantasy thing and start it the right way. So then we have the kind of person. So is that also why you switched what your writing name was going to be? Because of this kind of restart that you were doing? Yeah, exactly. This story that you have now, so The Kinder Poison, well, actually, why don't you give a little bit of a summary so people kind of know what we're talking about. The first book follows Saru, who's a teenage girl chosen as the human sacrifice in a deadly race across the desert for the throne between the king's three heirs. Whoever takes the life of the human sacrifice becomes the next ruler, and so she's kind of found herself in a very unfortunate situation here as being that sacrifice that they have to kill. She honestly just comes into the palace for chocolate and a night of fun. She's absolutely in the wrong place at the wrong time, gets chosen as a human sacrifice. And from there, she starts to learn more about each heir and why they desperately need to win, of course, at the expense of her own life. So there's that bit to it too, Zari trying to regain her own sense of worth and what kind of power she holds in this world when she's literally being told she's meant to die for this next ruler to ascend. And then 
then book two will deal more with the fallout from that, where heroes start to kind of fall into villainhood and vice versa. And book three will deal with another... So this is a little bit of a sneak peek. Book three will deal with another big problem. So the brewing war that we've been hinting at through book one and gets strung out a little stronger through book two will really come to a head in book three. Right. Was this one of the stories that you had? Have you ever gone back to your notebooks that you always had and mined it for stories? Or all your stories now are just totally, they're newer stories. Well, most of my little notebook stories, I was really a lot better at this when I was in elementary school. So most of the ones that I actually have saved and cataloged are about wolves and like (laughs) people who are are like horses told from the point of view of the horse. So (laughs) a lot of those could probably be some fun middle grade material maybe later on, but they were very much my elementary school dream stories. The Kinder Poison, I am trying to remember how... I thought of that one. Sometimes I just see characters for books before I see a plot or a world. And so for a really long time, I actually saw Costa and Maya, his bodyguard, for this book. And I just was thinking about them and where they fit and what kind of story they needed to be in before I even thought of Saru. And so I just kind of had an idea document where I would put down maybe a paragraph about a new idea that I would have. As I got older, I didn't have time to really be writing the stories until I turned it into my career. I think any of those ones from my real notebooks are probably a lost cause at this point. But <laughs> but yeah, I have my little idea notepad here on my computer. So you just randomly will just jot stuff down to go back to later? Yeah, sometimes if I see something in a movie or a book or even a song, sometimes will inspire me and I'll just kind of put it somewhere. I'll usually think about it for a really long time before I ever pursue creating a plot for it. So it'll be like those characters or that plot idea that just won't leave me alone that I know I can probably do something with this and I need to flesh it out. Right. Because sometimes you jump in too soon and then you realize like you don't really know what you want to do yet. And then yeah, you like burn out the story first. Yeah. Yeah, or you're like, wow, this story has been done five million times and this is the plot of Star Wars or whatever. So, you know, there's that as well. That's true. How do you keep tabs on what's out in YA? You pick up a book here and there and also just look at whatever's coming out or... Social media helps me with this a lot. So TikTok and Instagram, I just kind of scroll through and see what books people are talking about. And then I don't necessarily have time to read all of those books, I try to read the any ones that kind of jump out at me and speak to me that I know that I would enjoy. But even anything else that I'm like, okay, this isn't really my thing, but it's super popular. Let's see what it's about. And then I'll go and look at what tropes are drawing people into it and kind of what they're loving about it. It just kind of keeps me on top of where things are moving in young adult and making sure that my stories are not replicating anything that's already out there or building off of the good pieces that, okay, people are really liking this trope. I really love that one too. So I'm going to make sure I have something like that in my next book. So it just kind of keeps you on top of the market. Well, yeah, because it's impossible to read everything. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I wish I had a clone who could because I would just have the time of my life. Would you let the clone do the reading or you do the reading and let the clone take care of day-to-day stuff? I'm just hoping we'd have the same brain. It would be like I read it. I don't know. But uh, definitely I want to be the one reading and not doing chores. <laughs> oh yeah, just confirming. You just mentioned something about tropes. You sort of have like a little bit of a love triangle going on. Because you've got Costa and you got Jet. For a long time, part of YA that everybody had a love triangle and they kind of moved away from it. So now not as many books have it. And I was one of those people who, ah, why did they, whatever. And then I spoke to a romance writer once. Oh, she's actually one of my first interviews. So everyone can look up Sonali Dev after this. And she was saying from her mind, a love triangle is kind of showing two pathways before protagonist. You end up with, with this guy. So 
you, I think you see that a lot in, in your story very specifically, that it's two very distinct kind of people. So were you actually intentionally going for that? Or, or once you did it, you're like, oh, look what I set up here. Well, yeah, it was kind of an accident. I had, and I'm going to try and avoid any spoilers of what, I mean, if you've finished the second book, you probably know where this love triangle is going. But yeah. for anybody who's <laughs> listening and just kind of getting into it. So it was kind of an accident with the... How am I going to phrase this? It was kind of an accident with the good guy. When I was writing this, I knew that the other love interest, so so Costa is a little more hardcore. He's a villain love interest, I guess you would call him. So I knew going through book one, I was, I need to provide like a wholesome option for Zaru to explore here as well. So then Jet entered the picture. And then when I was working with my editor on the book, I had some pretty solid scenes between Costa and Zaru throughout book one already, but she really helped me to flesh Jet out more. And then I really liked him too. And then I was like, oh, Paul, I like, honestly have a problem now <laughs> so that's kind of how it happened in book one is just making sure both of those characters were full characters with their desires and wants and what they could provide to Zaru and what she brings out in them and what they bring out in her so I guess it was kind of accidentally on purpose but just to show some more sides of Zaru just to show some more sides of the story more than like going into it with oh I want a love triangle it just happened and then that continues a little bit in book two and you can kind of see her making more of a decision but yeah accidentally on purpose <laughs> well because on the one end you're also well they're half brothers so can you find another family but on the other end you see why yeah. it's like that because of the setup uh, yeah I don't know and that's the funny yeah. thing with books, too, is because in the real world, they probably would not be related at all. But you're in this really tight race, and the only way that they would be interacting with her during this story would be if they were at least somewhat related. So yeah, with storytelling, it kind of gets into that part, too. So I apologize to my readers who are like, I'm done with the brothers <laughs> or the half-brothers. I'm sorry why it had to happen. It's Otherwise, she's just writing to someone home. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to deal with this at all in book three, so if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. But you have the whole thing about how the king character, he's dying. And when you first read it, you're envisioning this, you know, this older guy who's dying because he's sick or whatever. And then, especially in book two, you very much highlight that the guy's in his, like, 30s or something. But because magic kills you with use. And then I'm like, I'm rooting for these characters who are going to die in, like, 15 years. <laughs> this is terrible! Yeah, I mean, every... Because we do, we do talk about in book one how the more powerful magic can really take a toll on people right. um, faster, but they do have different consequences. So the type of magic that some of these characters would have in book three is not necessarily something that do something else earlier than when Zaru is a, a whisperer who talks to animals. That's something she just eventually, she can't talk to them anymore and then she's kind of fine. But with these more powerful magics, they might lose the ability to stay warm or the healers do give their lives, something like that. But yeah, these super powerful in this world die pretty young and that's just kind of the cost of, of some of this magic. Wow. So, you know, those who don't have magic have a much better chance at life. So it's a good question. Would you rather have the magic? It's like, would you rather be Alexander the Great and conquer the world and people are still talking about you centuries later? Or you die on a battlefield at, at 30, what was he, 33, 36? Yeah. Pick your poison. Yeah, exactly. No, I don't know if you're going anywhere with it also. But in the second book, you kind of let slip that the new power that they get the mind reading power is related to the whisperer power, which is speaking to horses. Kind of like sort of put that in there. And that was like interesting. All the time that they said, oh, this is such a lowly power. That is like, but actually it's cousins to this very powerful 
power. So is it really such a lowly power because we found no relevance in it? We shoved it to the bottom of the totem pole. Exactly. Yeah. It's all the perception and the people at the top and how they want to spin it. That's kind of what I was playing with there. Interesting. Go back for a second. When you first set out to write the series, did you know it was going to be a series? Did you see it all kind of be the general idea of what the series was going to be before you? Or just book one. Let's see where this goes. When we sold it to Penguin, it was a two-book deal. So I always knew that I was going to be able to write the sequel. And then when I started to work on book one, I realized by the end of it that what I wanted to do with the characters still was not going to be able to be finished in one more book. So I, I knew that I would need another book after that. So I knew at that point, at the end of book one, I knew it would need to be a trilogy, which is something that I worked with my editors on. Well, because you still got to pitch it to Penguin then, just because, you know, they signed you for two books, three books changes their publishing plan. Yes. And actually, I will admit at this point, I am self-publishing this third book because we did get hit pretty hard with COVID. This book, the first book came out in June of 2020. Bookstores are still closed and yes. there's like massive movements of things happening and people are just trying to survive and not paying attention to books. So we did well, but not quite enough for the publisher to be okay, we'll risk it on a third, at least at this point. So I said, okay, well, I really need to finish this trilogy up. Like the story is not done. We're only two thirds through. So I'm going to be taking over the publishing of the last book, but I do have my original designer on board. Oh. So we'll have the same great cover for three. I have my original editor that I worked with on Kind of Poison on board as well, because she has shifted over into doing a different job. So she's kind of freelance helping me. So this book is in very good hands, but I am self-publishing this last one. Wow. One of the books that ended my latest series came out in May of 2020. So I know exactly. Oh yeah, no one was paying attention to books then. Really. Yeah, yeah. you're right there with me. So yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it is what it is kind of thing. Thank God it wasn't a debut book for me. It was the last book of the series. So I didn't have to worry about what was going to come after that. But really, I understand exactly. No one was caring about books then. Yeah, I know a lot of other books, too, took an even greater hit than we did. So I'm Whoa. really, really, really grateful to my fans on social media because you guys are the ones who have been keeping me relevant and keeping the conversation going two years after I came out during the middle, the worst part of the pandemic. So I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, well, as far as Penguin goes, there's not anything contractually that they care if you go on with the third book and these characters, right? You own everything. They're signed for the first two books, but the third book is all you. Other authors who are listening to this, you'll have to kind of check with your publisher if that's something you're considering doing. I got Razorbill's Blessing before this because I was asking them about options. And for a while, they were going to maybe do an ebook version of book three. They were mm. like, yeah, we could do that. But I really wanted to have a physical copy of the third book, which I kind of told them. So they're like, okay, well, you know, we can't sell our sales reps on this right now as the numbers currently are. But if you wanted to self-publish, you are welcome to. So they kind of opened the door there for me. Yeah, that's great. Uh, also, like you said, you got your editor on and your designer on. That's, I think a lot of people care more about the fact that their covers should be unified and that you got yes. an editor who knows the story, who's working on the story, than who actually put it out. Yeah, so, and who loves the characters. It was really important for me to get somebody on board who really loves this story and will make sure that we finish it out correctly than to just kind of throw it out there. So I'm really happy that I'm working with her again. Once you decide that it was going to be a trilogy, I think a lot of people have this when they're doing series. Their first books can be really strong and the last books can be really strong because that's a lot of what, what they had in mind. They knew the story beginning, they knew the story ending. Even though a lot of people, the endings are hard, but it's the middle where a lot of people kind of get 
a little lost sometimes or where you have like a sophomore slumber but it ends up being a travel book that nothing happens and it's just boring because it's a bridge. So when you were writing the second book, did you have any of those great, I better make sure something happens here or it's going to become just a blah book or no, I knew right away we we're going to have this action going on and things were going to be happening and big changes and all that. I think part of having plotted it originally as a duology and knowing what I wanted to happen in book two helped me a lot with this because originally I was going to wrap up everything in the two books. So I knew book two is like the revenge book. And so I kind of already had that in mind. So for whatever reason, book two was one of the easiest of the three for me to write. Like book three was an absolute bear. And it took me so long to get a first draft down and to get pieces in. I even posted up on my Instagram too. I was I. I'm finishing this draft at like 90,000 words. And I also deleted 83,000 <gasps> words to get to there. So I wrote two books, basically, trying to get the scenes and put my mind together for this third book. But book two just poured out of me. And because I think I had already known exactly what I wanted to happen in that book. And I knew where it was going after book two. So I never really felt that it was kind of a middle, I like, needed a connection. That story had to happen for book three, three to happen. I love that one just as much as as the other two. For a story to pour out is one of the biggest blessing. It is amazing. It really is. Part of book three's challenge, is it because endings are hard sort of thing? Or once you started writing it, you realized it wasn't as clear to you as you thought it was? Or just everything just blew up at the same time? Or... I think it's just because I made such a huge mess in book two to figure out how to fix everything in book three. Plus, we have a new villain entering the scene. So I needed to flesh that villain out and the war and how things happen with that. But then Zaru is still causing drama and drama (laughs) is still happening to her. So she has that struggle as well on top of this war. So it was just kind of marrying all of that together and just trying and this is now the third book so I want to tie everything up I want to put neat little bows on those character arcs I can't leave a big mess at the end of this one it has to be done so just trying to figure out how to finish a trilogy I think was my biggest struggle with this one and then the romance was also challenging just to figure out again how to clean up the mess that I've made and make the everything move forward Wow. Okay, one thing about book two, this is because I'm the reader, and as the reader, you see a little bit more about what's going on than the character living through the story. But there were certain times that I want to slap Zara upside the head. Stop being so myopic about the stupid cost and just do something. Enough already, you're repeating yourself. But you see why it also makes sense for her to be like that. Listen, we need to have a talk, you and I. Yes. Part of that, too, is that you know more than she does going into it already. And I've also discovered you don't mess with Saru's friends. That is something that is core to her character that kind of did not help with that. But that was quite intentional to see just how far she would go to protect what she believes in and who she thinks she needs to protect or or avenge or whoever. I mean, you see her start to to switch over because she cannot (laughs) let it go. Like she believes I have to do this. This is the right thing. I have to do this. Is it? So that's kind of the question that I wanted to raise with her. Right. Are you becoming Costa yourself? Bum, bum. Yes. That's something from book one that we start off and each character seems very clear to us as far as the three heirs, the three royal kids. Oh, this is the this one, the this one, the this one. And then you make sure to gut punch us with each one about why they're doing what they're doing. What's what's the sister's name? The the princess? Shakira. Right, right. So even, so her, she's like the party person, da-da, whatever, and then she has that moment with like the rag doll or with the doll, and you're like, oh, no. 
No, <laughs> she makes sense a little bit. Great, who would I actually want to be in charge now? I really love complex characters and I love to flesh out the different sides of them. And I think Victoria Schwab said something like this where she likes to introduce a character to you that you might not like or that she thinks you won't like and then make you like them. Or like that's kind of the challenge of going through. So I try in my writing to kind of do the same thing, to give you a character and you see one side of them to start and then to kind of fill them out a little more so you see, okay, why are they doing this? What is driving this fear? What is driving this pride or whatever it is? So it's not so one-dimensional and you're just, I don't want it to be easy to love or hate any one character. Like I want them to feel real. Right. Sometimes they'll try to do that where it's like the villain, then you see the villain. Okay, Robin is not considered a villain, but Robin Hood is stealing. But, oh, because he gives to the mm -hmm. poor, so we're kind of forgiving of him. Or sometimes you'll see a villain where, you know, he's this total evil guy, but then you see he has a very specific regard either for a sibling who might be, have some sort of special needs or something, or he might give out turkeys to the poor on uh, Thanksgiving. And then you're like, <laughs> well, you know, he's doing something good. But you didn't entirely go with that route because... Let's say someone like Costa who were like, oh, he is bad. We see right off that he will do anything. That's a level and he is intense and that is a big level. But then we also see that he's got this side of him that because what's going on with his magic situation, that the way he looks at people without it or the way he can believe in someone like a whisperer is a very good thing. It only comes because of what his situation is. And it's not like, oh, I'm giving out turkeys. This is something that's a very big game changer to be able to see someone as a whisperer as not being this like lowly whisperer. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if that was something intentional that you're like, okay, the, the quote unquote positive aspects of him, or if it's just, well, this kind of fell out. And then I realized that, hey, I'm onto something here. Yeah, I think that is one of those things where I just started to see, because you'll start with just a general character and I have his backstory, I know where he came from. And then as you write the story forward, then I started to see some similarities between him and Zaru, especially that I didn't even start the story with, but right. that I knew that he was realizing as, as things went by. So some of those just come out based on the backstory. And again, with trying to give him these human qualities that he can feel compassion for someone in the same situation, whether he acts well on that or not is another story, but just to make him human. And I think when you have a great complex villain, I think they do have to have that kind of human side where there is some Thing that they care about maybe even more than whatever this goal is that they're going after and there's this one line that they will or won't cross that makes them real so this is a total side thing when you have zaru it's at the end of book one she's on the boat and there's all the i think there's alligators in the in the water or crocodiles Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm like, how come she doesn't talk to them? Can she not talk to crocodiles? What are the rules? Does she only talk to horses and, like, domesticated animals? How come she can't talk to crocodiles? I'm upset. <laughs> well, she probably could talk to the crocodiles, but she can't command the crocodiles. Please don't eat me. So, like, <laughs> okay. that's just kind of the different line there. Is she can talk to animals and she can make suggestions, but a predator who is after her to eat her is not going to change their mind just because she can talk to them. So... Okay, so the whisperer is not like baby whisperer, put the baby to sleep whisperer. It's just, we can communicate with you whisperer. Yes, please don't eat me. And yeah. then, you know, then you get eaten. So, you know. Well, I'm glad I have that clarified. Yeah. <laughs> These are the important questions. Right, exactly. So we always wrap up with, you can give off the cuff or your soapbox answer or whatever, if you need to think about the answer. We always do a fill in the blank of, I really like it when, and using any one of these, I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, book covers, stories, librarians, I don't know, plot points, well, series, whatever, anything book related. I really like it when they do X and I really don't like it when any, using any of them do X. So how would you uh, fill in the blank for that? 
So I think we touched a little bit on this earlier, but I really like it when writers put complex villains into their stories. I think that if you have a great villain and a great hero, you'll have a great story every time. And I really don't like it when books have a super goody two-shoes hero who always does the right thing because that's the right thing to do. I, I like to see that human struggle. I like to see it in the villains. I like to see it in the heroes. I want it to be hard for heroes to make some of these decisions or to make some of the sacrifices that they do to make these good decisions. And, and I want to see it. So you're more Batman than Superman. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, I'm definitely Batman. No disrespect to Superman, but I'm definitely Batman. Okay, one, more, one follow-up before we like really wrap up. Would you say there's kind of a line for when you're making complex heroes and or villains, specifically heroes, where it's, as much as you got to make them complex, you really got to make sure you stay away from certain lines because then they're not a hero anymore. Like I can't, you don't have to be specific about it, but would you say that kind of exists? Just because they're the hero and we're making them morally complex doesn't mean you can just do anything with them. Or can you do anything with them? Ah, that is such a good question. I think if you want to stay on the hero scale where people are seeing your person as a hero, there are certain lines that they shouldn't cross, maybe needless killing or, or something along those lines before they really start to get into villain territory and you're like, oh, you know, this person is maybe a little more bad than they are good now. So I think there is a, a line to walk there if you're going to keep a character in that hero phase so that they aren't fully crossing over i like to see that struggle but they should not be massacring a whole city or something and then be like oh maybe i shouldn't have done that i'm still a hero <laughs> like no at this point you've crossed over so yeah i would say there's a line right when the superman came out with henry cavill and i remember how many years ago and a lot of people were upset because at the end superman kills spoiler alert but the movie's been out for a long time he kills whatever the general i don't remember the general thing whoever he is and people are like, Superman doesn't kill. And then Max Landis, he's a writer, and he did this whole kind of rebuttal thing for it. And he's my problem is that Superman didn't kill earlier because why did all the people in the city have to die before Superman took action? And sometimes, if you're going to be the hero, you got to cross that line because you're saving. That kind of reminded me of that, even though I don't really know that's what you were saying. But Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about the hero getting rid of the threat, that's like a whole nother discussion, I think. I was talking more, they're just like doing these villainous things and that's starting to turn them into a villain but man i don't know about killing the villain at the end i know that happens a lot and they're still considered the hero and then they're considered saving lives so i don't know the right answer to that one we'll have to see okay okay wait, one second one more question and then we're really gonna wrap up well maybe you won't have an answer who knows or you can't say it have you started yet kind of thinking about what's going to come next or you're like book three done and then we can think of the next thing that is kind of a secret right now. So I do have something lined up for after okay, this cool. trilogy, but I can't say anything more than something else is in the works. Great. You're going to have people just keep refreshing the page to see if something new came out. <laughs> just everyone just stay calm. There's something happening. Well, great. Very good. Natalie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was a lot of fun speaking with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Natalie May. To find out more about Natalie and her work, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word Podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word Podcast. And please check us out at el Music goodbye to Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.